Yesterday, between uh, noon hour and one o'clock, I suddenly realized that I had a big challenge with uh, three and a half hours left to go till the first service. I had way too much material, and not a little bit too much. Uh, that happens often, and we have to whittle down, whittle down. But it was way overboard, and I suddenly was alarmed. I said, "There, I just don't know what to do. And so I had this sense, maybe I should turn this into, you know, at least two, maybe three messages. And so I phoned Fran, and she got uh, Julie, and they, they started praying into it as well. And, and finally, it was very obvious what I was supposed to do. And uh, so I split the message in, well, at least half. And who knows what happens to that. So what was supposed to be a one-off message is now turning into a mini-series, and we're going to be talking about eternal rewards. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. So let's uh, bow our heads for prayer and invite the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts, and, and let's just intentionally engage with Him now as He wants to speak to us about, about uh, living in the line. We're living in the dot, preparing for the line. And let's ask Him to speak about that. Lord, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for these that have made a commitment uh, on our core value, number seven, to commit and love the local church that you made, that you invented, and that you died for. And I just thank you for each one. I pray for a blessing on them. And uh, we know, Lord, that you've brought them here because you want Southland to become even better even greater in the sense of having more impact to move the kingdom forward and to invite men and women into the kingdom. So I thank you for each and every one of them. And Lord, now we thank you also for the topic at hand, for the uh, word that you have for us on eternal rewards and uh, eternity. And uh, we just ask that you would help us to engage in that kind of thinking, which is so countercultural, to think about the future and uh, to prepare for that. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that we're talking about eternal rewards on membership weekend. And yesterday as I was sitting there just before I got up and I, I, was, uh, I was praying silently and I thought, Lord, this is kind of odd. That I'm talking about eternal rewards instead of the church or something like that. Uh, at the very time we're celebrating membership and then a thought came immediately and I knew where it came from. And he said... Jesus invented the church as a tool to help us prepare for eternity. You see, we're only living in a dot. We're living in the dot. And we're preparing for the line, the eternal line. Or as A.W. Tozer put it, the long tomorrow. That's a powerful thought. Uh, we were in, uh, Fran and I were in a restaurant early part of this last week in another community. And the waitress came to us, and, and uh, she was serving us, and, and uh, she, she's very, very pleasant to us. And all of a she, she looked at me, and she said, what do you think about all this talk about the end of the world? And I thought, uh, boy, have you come to the right person to talk, talk, talk to about this particular subject? Uh, <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about this. And so I told her, I said, have you been reading The Sun? She said, yes. And I said, you're, you're referring, I take it to that, that, that uh, one-page uh, article about the end of the world. And she said, yes, I am referring to that. She said, and I've been thinking about it. And I'm wondering what you think about that. And I said, well, I'm a, I, I'm a pastor. And I said, we talk about such things uh, at our church. Would you like me to bring you some materials, maybe some DVDs or something, uh, on that topic? And she said, 
Yeah, I think I would like that very much. So tomorrow we plan to go to the restaurant uh, armed with materials and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, discussion on the end of the world. Though the world is wondering about the end of the world, much of the church isn't saying much about that, nor about what comes next. It's as though how we live here and now is all that matters. Yet our lives, our words, and our actions are to be motivated by eternity. By eternity. We're to live in light of eternity. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Because of what's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon, we're to live in light of that. We're supposed to live accordingly. Satan deceives us into thinking of the afterlife as some ghost-like existence. While scripture portrays it as a tangible and earthy Thing. That's why I like the PowerPoint that uh, Landon Getz made for us, and he's just outstanding at it. He makes all these PowerPoints, and uh, where it has the bridge, you know, and it's, it's, it's real, and it's earthy, and it's tangible, and you, it's literal, and you can touch it, and it's not just blue sky and wispy clouds and angels sprouting from our backs. Aren't you glad? It's a, it's a real thing, and Satan deceives us into thinking that it's ghost-like. Satan does, does this in order to turn our minds away from the wonders of heaven, because who wants to live like that? Our true home, and then set them on things that, are, that will not matter in eternity. So we come back to reality then. Our present lives and possessions that we can see and hear and touch and feel and taste here, things that are real, we think. We return to the pressing business of the day, including what's happening in the sports and in the news, Wall Street, Hollywood, Ottawa, Washington, London, some health, self, uh, self-help technique that can help us be more beautiful or happy or how to decorate our home or what's the latest kind of car we can buy. We live as though these shadow lands are the real world, the ultimate reality, but they're not. They're just shadows of what is to come. This is just like the scent of food when you walk into the door and uh, you can, no, I can't smell, but they say this is what you can do. You can smell what's being cooked. And it's a foretaste of, of the real thing. But you wouldn't want to live on smell, would you? You can't live on smell. And this is just a foretaste a shadow, a picture of something much better, the ultimate reality that's yet to come. And Scripture has a great deal to say about that. There's a judgment coming that will determine where we go and what we get. In Hebrews, the writer said, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face, and what's the word? Judgment. So what does Scripture teach about where we go and what we get? Number one, it, de- it teaches that your faith determines your destination. The initial judgment depends on our faith. Jesus discussed this more than anyone else in the Bible. He warned that not everyone makes it or gets into heaven. In Matthew 10, it says, Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus didn't teach that everyone will be saved in the end. That's universalism, and we see some of that creeping up in some, some, some of the teaching out there today again. 
Hell and Sheol in the, from the Old Testament, Hades and the grave are other names used for this. And as the intermediate heaven will give way to heaven on the new earth, it's going to be a new earth, the old will uh, pass away, it'll be burned up, a new earth will be created, and the new Jerusalem will come down on it. And as this intermediate heaven will give way to this, this heaven on new earth, so too the intermediate hell gives way to the final lake of fire. Now the lake of fire is where many people will go after they're judged. Those that were in hell, hell will be cast into the lake of fire. It's the ultimate place. And uh, the scriptures say, Then I saw a great white throne, the dead and great and small, standing before the throne. And each person was judged according to what he had done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. And how do you get your name book in the life, uh, in the book of, uh, written in the book of life? We'll talk about that in a minute. But through trusting Jesus, simply put, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell and the lake of fire, like paradise and the new earth, are real places. Somebody might ask, well, why did God create hell? Hell was not part of the original creation. Hell is something God was forced to make because people chose to rebel and turn against God and his purpose for which they were made. When people founded Canada a long time ago, they didn't start out by creating jails. They would, not, uh, they would have much rather have had a society where they didn't need jails. But they were forced to create them because people wouldn't cooperate. And the same thing happened in the beginning with uh, Adam and Eve. God created this wonderful place. He didn't start by saying, oh, let's, in addition to the new earth, let's create a, a hell where we can send people. That wasn't his intent. It's never been his intent. But some wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't uh, uh, cooperate. And uh, so when, with the intra- entrance of sin and rebellion in the world, Adam and Eve began to think of themselves as the center of the universe. All social pathologies, whether they're war and rape and bitterness and nurtured envies and secret jealousies and pride and inferiority uh, complexes are all bound up in the idea that we are at the center of our own universes. We're not rightly related to God. And the consequence is that people get hurt. Many people are hurt by the sins we commit because we're at the center, selfish, self-centered center of our own universes, trying to get for ourselves. And from God's perspective, it's disgusting. So what should God do about it? If he says, oh, I don't give a rip, he's saying that evil doesn't matter to him. It's like saying, oh yeah, the Holocaust, I don't really care. Wouldn't we be shocked if God didn't have moral judgments on such matters? And he judges all who shake their puny fists at his face and say, as they sing, I did it my way. God hates hell, and God hates that people are going there. He really does. That was not his intent, and he doesn't want people to go there. He said to the prophet Ezekiel, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God put Jesus on a cross with his arms stretched open wide and placed it right between mankind and hell, beckoning people to stop their headlong rush to hell. But people just just go to the edges and they get past and they go. Jesus paid a big price so that we wouldn't have to be there. God sent his son so that no one 
need perish. So somebody asked the question, well, does God give us a second chance after death? Well, the question assumes something. It assumes that God didn't do everything possible before people died. God does everything he can to give people chances. No one will be able to say, if only you had given me another 12 months. The Bible tells us that God is delaying the return of Jesus precisely to give everybody all the time he possibly can so that they will come to him. That's why it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Many people have, have said, you know, everything is continued as it has since the beginning of the earth. Obviously, God's not coming back. And Peter's refuting that thought in this passage. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you. That's why he's doing it. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's giving us many chances. God is fair. He isn't trying to make it difficult. He's patiently giving as many opportunities as possible. Now, or now is the time uh, of the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth chances. In fact, every day that you wake up is another chance to respond to God. He, he uh, you know, uh, people say, I want a second chance uh, after death. That would be the millionth chance, not the second chance. He's giving many chances now. There won't be another chance after death because of that. Nowhere does uh, Scripture suggest that. The doctrine of purgatory taught by some simply does not exist in Scripture. Besides, if you could see the great white throne judgment that we just read about in Revelation, where the dead will be, uh, you know, the dead will be raised to life to be judged and then cast into, in, into hell, if you could actually see that judgment before making a decision, it would be coercive. It would be like me holding a paddle over my son when he was young, one of my sons, and saying, are you sorry for taking that toy from your sister? And the answer would be, of course I'm sorry. But are they really sorry? No, they're sorry they got caught. And as soon as you're not looking, they'll do it again. Or if there's no consequence. A person with a second chance after death would not be choosing God uh, or his kingdom. He would only be choosing to avoid judgment. Heaven, however, will be populated with people who chose God and his kingdom because they love and desire and want him. There will be no one in heaven who will be there reluctantly and saying, well, it was the lesser of the two evils. Go to hell or go to heaven? I guess I'll go to heaven. There will be no such people there. It'll only be people that actually wanted to be there, who actually wanted to love God, who actually wanted to follow God. It's the only kind of people that'll be there, who put their faith and trust in Him then. <clears throat> so somebody says, or asks the question, can a believer <clears throat> then lose their salvation and end up in hell? Well, let's see what the Scriptures have to say about it. In 2 Timothy 2 Paul wrote in the, in the scriptures, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also, what's the word? Disown us. Now, let me give you an example. A person cannot be disowned by, by, from a family if they were never a part of a family. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you can't be disowned from something you were never a part of in the first place. And so for God to be able to disown a person, 
that it would have had to have been one of his children or a believer at some point. And Jesus prophesied that in the end times, many believers would lose their salvation. Scripture calls it the falling away. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, then, and then many will fall away. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, when it uses the word endures, uh, to the end will be saved. He's not talking about somebody who's just hanging onto a, dear, onto a rope for dear life. He can just barely hang on. He's been hanging on so tight. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody that trusted Christ at the beginning and he's trust, trusted him the next day and the next day and the next day. You know what? Today I got up and I was trusting Christ. I don't know, were there any of you? <laughs> I trusted him yesterday. I'm still trusting him today. And I intend to be trusting him tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. That's all he's talking about. But God doesn't, uh, in the dot, while we're living in this short, punctiliar dot, God gives us the opportunity. He will not violate our will. He won't coerce or force anybody into heaven. You know why? Because then it wouldn't be love. It'd be coercion. And so he won't do it. And so, if per, he, so he, won't, he doesn't go, okay, I hope they get saved. I hope they get saved. And then one day you make a decision like I did when I was 11 or 12 years old. And now after that, then God just snaps the, you know, snaps uh, handcuffs on you and says, ha ha, now you can't, now, now I got you, now you're going to heaven, you can't get out of here. Oh, no, no, there, no such thing. If a person living in the dot wants to turn around and, and leave, they can leave. And when you get to heaven, you won't be in heaven because, uh, so much because you can't get out, it's because you wouldn't want to get out. Do you see what I mean? It's not like you get saved, you trust, 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 and then finally one day he's got you. Oh, shoot, I can't get out. That's not how salvation works. That's not how love works. And so many will fall away. So the question is, are there varying, somebody asked the question, are there varying degrees in hell or the lake of fire? Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, each person was judged according to what he had done. Will everyone receive the same judgment at the great white throne uh, uh, judgment? Will Adolf Hitler receive the same sentence as everyone else? I hope not. I know so, according to scriptures, that, that that won't happen. I would certainly hope not because then that we wouldn't have a just God, would we? We know intuitively that there must be justice in the universe. But note this, and this is where I want you to, I'm, I'm taking a pause now because I want to make sure I've got your attention on this one. Because we never say this. It will be particularly bad for those who believed and then fell away. You say, can you prove that? Absolutely. Scripture says this. Second Peter chapter 2, it says, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by, what's the word? Knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, they know him. They've escaped the corruption of the world. And then become entangled again in it and overcome. They are worse off. What's the, what's the phrase? Worse off 
at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. That, my friend, is a sobering statement. And the scriptures teach it and God says it. It would have been better not to have known than to have known it and then to turn their backs on Christ. What did Jesus say about Judas? He said it would have been better for him not to be born. Why? For this exact reason. He knew Jesus. Judas knew Jesus from experience. He had tasted. He knew him experientially. He had heard him. He had walked with him. He had known what forgiveness and guilt removed was like. He had known what it was like to have joy in his life and to have purpose and meaning. He had known all these things. And then looking God right in the face, he turned around and walked away. And God says, that will be wor- it'll be worse for such a person than for a person who didn't know, uh, didn't have that experience to walk away from God. You know what I call that? Justice. Why should this one have the same payment as this one? True? Why? That would be unjust. Churches wouldn't like to hear what I'm saying right now. Many churches wouldn't like it. But it's the truth, and the scriptures teach it. Now, I want to make a note here, and then we're going to move on, because we're getting to reward yet. That's in the second point, okay? But I want, to make a, I want to make a sobering point here right now, a practical one. If you are an individual who's tasted and you, you prayed a sinner's prayer and you became a Christian and a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are playing the game, you are playing with fire. Because behind you are children that you're raising. And what happens I've seen it. Listen, I've been in, in, in uh, vocational ministry now for 24 years. I've seen it time and time again. People who play the game of Christianity, they're in and they're out, one foot in hell and one foot in heaven kind of thing, or one in the world and one in heaven. They're not sold out. They're messing around. They raise up their kids. This is what happens. Inevitably, their kids get saved at an impressionable age, Maybe 10, maybe 8, maybe 6, maybe 11. I don't know what. They come to Christ and they start to taste of some of these things. And then they become teenagers. And teenagers are extremely idealistic and they watch the modeling of their parents. And late in their teens, they turn away from Jesus and the church or early into their adulthood and they walk away from him. Let that thought sink into your minds. That's a sobering thought. Now, everybody gets to make a choice. No question about it. And sometimes you have people that are modeling well and working, praying hard for God, and, and, all this, and the kids still make a choice. That's not what I'm talking about. And in the U.S. today, they're taking surveys, and they have found 80% of kids coming out of evangelical homes are leaving the church never to return again. That is sobering in light of what we just read, is it not? It really is. Perhaps you're 
someone else and you scoff at the whole notion of hell. There were two men who owned farms side by side. One was a bitter atheist, the other a devout Christian, constantly annoyed by, uh, uh, by this Christian for his trust in God. The atheist said to him one winter, let's plant our crops as usual this spring, each the same number of acres, you pray to your God and I'll curse him. Then come October, let's see who has the bigger crop. So when October came, the atheist was delighted because his crop was larger than the believer's crop. See you fool, he taunted. What do you have to say for your God now? My God, replied the other farmer, doesn't settle all his accounts in October. Jesus said, unless we repent, you, you repent, you too will all perish. Well, we, looked, uh, we found that our faith determines our destination, but our works determine our rewards. Many, uh, many people, Christians included, think that heaven will consist of hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, after which all our odometers will be reset to zero and we all get to start off at the same place again. Oh, just hit that little button, everything's zeros, and we're at the same place. Hallelujah. Had it good on earth, and now we'll have it good in heaven too. Nothing could be further from the truth. What you do today in the dot will determine what heaven will be like for you in the line. That's why God's word treats the subject of judgment with sobriety. Judgment is not a meaningless formality before getting on with the real business of enjoying heavenly bliss. Speaking to the Christians at the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one... So there's the great white throne judgment, uh, that determines uh, where the, our faith is judged and determines our destination. And at the judgment seat of Christ, that's a place where believers go. Once it's been determined, they're already going to heaven, but now they're judged by their works. That each may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. At this judgment, all Christians will give account for, of, of their lives on earth. Paul, uh, Paul said, the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 3, the fire will test the quality of each man's, what is it? Work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer, what's the word? Loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, he gets in there by the seat of his pants. That's what he's saying. It is evident that this judgment does not determine destination. That's why it says he's saved, but only escaping through, uh, as through flames. The Christian goes to heaven, though he goes with nothing in this particular case. This judgment determines the rewards received in heaven. Now, many people have this completely backwards. They think that good works gets them into heaven. And once you get to heaven, the rewards are free. It's exactly the opposite. Getting into heaven is a gift we freely receive by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is free. But once we, the gift determines our destination of going to heaven. It's what we do here in the dot that determines what will happen to us in the line. And that's a, a fascinating thought. It's fascinating that we memorize pet verses while ignoring the context. For example, 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We all, many people, many believers know this one. For it is by grace you have been saved by. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Many, many, many believers in evangelicalism today have memorized that. Boy, they've got that one down pat. I'm sure the devil's helped them because they don't know the verse that follows. In fact, did you know that those little numbers never were there in the original? That's something somebody added hundreds of years later just to help us get to the same page. It's one continuing thought. And look at the very next thought that is part of the context. It says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means that God has a customized lifetime plan of good works for each of us to do. And we better find it, we better know what that plan is and then start to carry that plan out. He has a plan for your life. It's customized, and it's customized of good works that affects how you're going to live in eternity. And it all has to do with advancing his kingdom, his agenda, and reaching others and bringing them into the kingdom and sending them on forward. Everything has to do with that. That's our whole purpose for being here. Otherwise, we may as well just get saved and go straight to heaven. So that's what he uh, says. And he will reward us according to whether or not we do those good works planned for us. We know that Christ will come to say to, uh, will say to some, but not to all, believers, well, what's the word? Done, good and faithful servant. He didn't say, notice this, he didn't say, well believed, good and faithful servant. That's how, how evangelicals believe it. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what I asked you to do. And uh, so, so much for that. And let's go to the next one. Being in heaven will be good enough for me. Oh, no, it won't. You know how I know that? First, Scripture says it will matter to you. John said, and now, dear, dear children, continue in them, in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and, what's the word, and what? Unashamed before him at his coming. You wouldn't be ashamed uh, if just making it to heaven was good enough. The point is, the scriptures tell us that when we see Christ, we'll be ashamed because we didn't prepare for the exam. You know, people going into an exam room and they haven't prepared, they get beat red. Have you ever seen that? And they're running or flitting around from one person to the next just before the exam is taken. Uh, oh, what, 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 did we say? what did we study about this? Uh, you know, and they're really uptight. And they become ashamed it will matter at the end. Second, I can tell by what's important to you now. In this life, you have a desire for pleasure, possessions, power, and honor, and praise. Would you agree with that? And you and I spend a lot of time, money, and energy pursuing these. Now, here's what you think about them all, uh, about all this. On the one hand, you want all these things, like pleasure and possessions, power and honor that comes with it, and praise. Is it not true? On the one hand, we all want it. Do we or do we not? Secretly? We do. But on the other hand, you secretly harbor suspicions that somehow these desires might be carnal, secular, and unspiritual. Is it true? 
you got these desires on the one hand, and then somehow you got this feeling that I think Christians aren't supposed to want any of that. But they are not carnal, secular, and unspiritual. The desires for those four things are not carnal. They're not, and I'll prove it to you. It is true that Satan tempts us in exactly those four areas, but these desires are not rooted in our sin natures. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with these before they had a sin nature. And he also tempted Jesus with the exact same ones. You know, the lust of the eyes and, uh, uh, and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life? He tempted them with exact same ones. Satan can tempt us in this only because God first built these desires in us. We desire pleasure and possessions and power not because we're sinful, but because we're human. God created us with a desire for possessions and honor and pleasure and praise. And because we're made with those desires, when you go to heaven, you will have these exact same desires. You say, no, not in heaven, we won't. Then we'll be perfect. Then you'll want them even more. You will. How do I know? Because God appeals to us through those four desires promising to reward us in those areas. And we're going to look at it very quickly. Number one, here, uh, let's look at the rewards of possession. We're just going to talk about the rewards today. Next week we'll talk about how do you get those rewards. That's the part I lopped off. <laughs> so we're just going to be talking about the rewards today themselves a little bit. For, uh, for example, God offers us the reward of incredible dwelling places. Will we actually have living quarters in heaven? Well, of course we will. The New Jerusalem is a physical city with exact measurements and dimensions recorded in Revelations 21. In fact, it'll be the largest city this planet, well, the remade planet, has ever seen. It'll make any of our uh, uh, mega cities of the world look like villages. That's how big the New Jerusalem is, the capital. It's going to be just massive. In fact, not only that, there will be many other cities. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. And to another one, he said five cities. And of course, you can't have cities without residences, can you? Jesus spoke of that as well. He said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. By the way, uh, not only will there be cities, there will be farms. I had a, I had a farmer come to me right after the first message. <laughs> Somebody's clapping. And said, well, I don't really like cities. Will there be any big farms? And I said, yes. I said, yes, there will be, because we're going to be eating a lot as well and drinking. And this was a dairy farmer, and I said, there'll be dairy farms. And they said, great, because then we can have ice cream in heaven. So anyway, that's another topic. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> and 1 Corinthians 3 suggests that in this life, we were, pro we were providing for the building materials for our Lord to use in this construction project. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own, what's the word? Labor. But each man must be careful how he, what? Builds. What are you building in heaven? Are you building in heaven? Are you sending anything there for them to build with? The size and quality of our eternal homes <clears throat> are determined by our works today. <clears throat> it's funny. We act as though there's no continuity between our present lives on earth and our future lives in heaven. But there is. 
This is just the dress rehearsal. This is the preparation. This, this, is, uh, this is what precedes that. And this one affects that one. Given the physical nature of our resurrection bodies, which we know about, and all that goes with it, including eating and drinking at tables, and by the way, there won't be any fasting in heaven, hallelujah. <laughs> Amen? No January months of prayer and fasting. Oh, I'm so glad about that, aren't you? And on a new earth in a great city, why should we be surprised to find that we will have actual places to live or that we will be able to welcome others into them? You're going to have, uh, you're going to have dwelling places and you're going to have people coming over and visiting and fellowship. It's going to be wonderful. And only people that you like having come over will come. <laughs> Amen? There won't be any unlikable ones. Oh, I want to go to heaven. Especially when you consider that there will be in what will be in a new heaven and a new earth. It's not a non-earth. It's a new earth the scripture keeps talking about. And of course, there will be many other possessions as well. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I don't know, I mean, there's many, and we could talk about that, but uh, I know that I want a twin a plane over there. But I don't know what they'll have. Matthew 6 uh, says that. Heaven, new earth, will not be less than this earth than what it is here, it will be more. Scripture is abundantly clear on that. Rewards of power and honor. Believers will reign with Christ over the new earth and universe. In Revelation 20 it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these. The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will, what's the word? Reign with him. Will rule over angels. Do you not know that we'll judge angels? Some will be put in charge of many things. His master replied, you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Others, Christ spoke of granting some followers leadership roles over cities because you've been trustworthy in a a small matter. Take charge of ten cities. In another one, it was five. And it has nothing to do with how many cities you led here. It has to do with were you faithful with the matter that was given to you, the plan of works that was given you. Were you faithful with carrying that out and trustworthy? If you were, you will have much responsibility. If you were not, you will have little responsibility there. I personally would like a lot of responsibility, wouldn't you? Oh, something to wake up for. It's evident that though all believers will be with Christ, not all will reign with him, or at least not with equal responsibility and authority. And those of you that like leadership and challenge and that kind of stuff, and even if you uh, uh, aren't but you would like to, purpose and vision, creativity, building, expansion, growth, goals, accomplishment, leadership, oversight, management, responsibility, they're all part of what the new heaven on earth will be. Oh, I want to go. And anyone can win such honor. Just be trustworthy in small matters now. Not only can we be, uh, be rewarded with the honor of responsibility, we can also be rewarded with the honor of crowns. For example, Revelation 2 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And it talks about other crowns. We'll talk about some of them next week. One thing is clear. These crowns are real and literal. In Revelations, we see the 24 elders. They take their crowns and cast them before the throne. Uh, uh, Let's read that uh, portion there. Whenever the living creatures give glory, whenever they do that, and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, whenever the living creatures do that, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, 
who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They cast their crowns. They're giving credit where credit is due. They've earned something and they're giving credit. But I want you to note something interesting. The casting of the crowns is not a one-time action. The elders keep casting their crowns before the throne whenever the living creatures give glory to the one who's seated on the throne. That means, and maybe it happens at worship times in heaven. I, I don't know exactly. It doesn't say exactly when it happens. But whenever they do it, the t- 24 elders, they take the crowns that they've earned and they cast them down before the Lord uh, who is worthy. And they say, oh Lord, the only reason I could earn this, uh, this reward was because you were so worthy. You died on the cross for my sins and you gave me a plan and then you empowered me with your Holy Spirit and you, uh, uh, through listening prayer, you showed me every little step to take and you gave me all the resources to carry it out. That's why, in the end, uh, it belongs to you. All power and praise. And you know what they do after that? They pick up their crowns and put them back on. It's very important to understand that because, uh, again, the enemy would like to lie to us and give us a feeling that, you know, it's a one-time thing. You get into heaven and you get a little paper crown, maybe like they make in kids' ministry or something, you know, put on a little crown, you wear it for a bit, and after that, you throw it at Jesus' feet. He picks them up, throws them in a bin or burns them up or whatever, and then after that, it's like the odometers are at zero and nobody knows the difference. Not so. Not so. It's a thing of honor. These crowns are like badges of honor that you will keep putting on and keep casting before him, perhaps during worship times. For example, war veterans. You ever notice they seem to have the biggest chests in the world, and for good reason. They're carrying medals, so they walk proudly with those medals that they've earned, and they should. Uh, I would. If you want an Olympic gold medal, a companion of the Order of Canada for outstanding achievement of the highest degree or a Victoria Cross for the most conspicuous bravery and valor in the presence of the enemy, would you throw, throw those medals in the bottom drawer or would you display them in a prominent place in your home? Crowns are a big deal in heaven and will be a big deal on the new earth. Jesus is wearing one. You know, when we were in London, England, we toured a museum in which they had royal crowns and scepters. There's a lot of guards around. And they were absolutely stunning. Not the guards, but these crowns were (laughs) stunning. The grammar sometimes. If man makes such incredible crowns, can you imagine crowns made by God? Because the devil knows the value of all such rewards, he is deceiving you into thinking they're not spectacular or that it won't matter to you if you're wearing one or not, or that you don't get to keep it. And he's doing it so that you don't think it matters what you do here, because it won't make any difference over there. And I want to tell you, as we said at the beginning of the message, live your life now in light of eternity, because it will matter, according to Scripture, to you. You get to keep your crowns not for 20 minutes, not 20 years, but for 20 trillion years, and then beyond that. Unlike the British crowns that symbolize nothing more than that they happen to be born in the royal family, these will symbolize achievement. And then there's the rewards of pleasure very quickly. <clears throat> and lastly, Psalm 16 says, You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You know, I love to go flying when the sun is setting. It's a beautiful day. Did you see that lovely sunset this last week? 
Some of you saw it online. It was just spectacular, the big sky here of Manitoba. Or uh, we love to, a friend and I love to go to Vancouver and sit and look at the mountains and the ocean. I've seen giraffes, elephants, hippos, crocodiles, lions, and chimps in Uganda. I've seen three kinds of whales within eight feet of me on a boat off the coast of Newfoundland. I've swum with exotic fish on a reef in the Red Sea. <clears throat> I've eaten some of the most luscious fruits the world produces right where they've grown, right where they're grown. Picked them right off trees and plants and eaten them there. I've seen the thundering falls of Niagara and admired some of the world's finest architecture and grandest achievements and greatest cities. But the scriptures teach us that these will all be like watching black and white TV, like eating rice crackers, which is, tastes something like styrofoam, <laughs> or like admiring sandcastles on a beach compared to what is coming. The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. John gave us glimpses in Revelation, but there's more. Fran and I enjoy some of the pleasures when we're gone, <clears throat> as you do when you travel. But you know what, know what we've noticed in some of these places where a lot of retirees go? They sell their, their places wherever they live, and they move to these beautiful places to retire. And you know what I've noticed? Lonely couples. Lonely couples. They've left their family and their friends to live in these, these beautiful places. And there is some pleasure in some of those things, as I just mentioned. But no pleasure compares to the pleasure of family and friends. Would you agree? Anybody can enjoy that. <clears throat> and uh, because uh, relationships are by far the greatest treasures and pleasures we enjoy. And if we use our present time and money and talents and opportunities, the works that God has planned for us in advancing his kingdom and bringing others into the kingdom, look what we get in heaven. Look what Jesus said, had to say about that. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain what? Friends. It says you can buy off friends. <laughs> That's what it says. But not here, not for here. You can, buy, you, can, you can buy friends for eternity. Every time you give, every time you pray, every time you serve, every time everything that God's given you to do that advances kingdom and brings more people in the kingdom, they go on ahead of you and there can be a welcoming party for you there of all kinds of nationalities because of the missions that we're involved in and all that kind of stuff. And people from here... And they're going to come, they're going to, there's going to be a big welcome. You're coming in, it's going to be a surprise welcome party. And you go, I, I, I can't believe it. Is this for me? Yes. And they are the ones that are going to want you over all eternity, all the time. And every time you come over, they're going to say, uh, come on in, come on in, let's have a cup of tea. Let's talk about it. Remember that time you gave over there? Well, because of that, I'm here. Oh, and then they can't resist it. They jump up and hug you again. I don't know, do you like hugs? <laughs> You're going to get lots of them over there if you sent enough of them over there. And that's what Jesus says. Wow. Problem isn't in seeking possessions, honor, power, and pleasure, and praise. The problem is in seeking that here. 
Whatever you get here is simply lent to you in order to advance Christ's kingdom here and bring kingdom, people into that kingdom. And at the end of your life, you have to give it all back. After that, you get rewarded. And that, you don't have to give back. You get to keep. Oh, heaven's going to be a special place. Next week, we're going to talk about how to get reward, these rewards, and how to keep from losing them. But right now, there's a lot of Christians in the West, in the Western church, and I'm talking, when I, somebody asked me, what do you mean, you always say in the West? Well, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the uh, Canada and the U.S. and Europe and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, these kinds of places, the West, first world countries. A lot of Christians who are living for the dot instead of the line. And they have no idea that their dot is about to expire. And after that, what they did in the dot is going to determine the line, the long tomorrow. And so they play games and they don't realize that they are going to regret it tremendously. For the next few moments, I'd like all of us to do some introspection. To think about that, our own lives. To ask the Holy Spirit to shine light on our lives. And say, God, am I living in light of the long tomorrow? Some of you already know what the answer to that is. You don't even need to ask. You just need to repent. You say, Ray, you know, I I don't like this kind of message. I'm going to tell you something. If you respond to this one day, you'll be inviting me to your home in heaven. And you'll be thanking me many times that I told you the truth. And that I didn't just make try to make you feel good in the dot. So I'd like you to spend the next few moments in prayer right now and deal with God. Would you do that? Perhaps you came here this morning and um, you, don't, you don't know that you've got things settled between you and God. Or perhaps you know. You know you're not a child of God. You're not a believer. You haven't been. You're not certain what will happen to you at judgment, what your destination would be. But you would like to. You can take care of that right now just by recognizing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You deserve to go to hell like all all of us. 
You've been running your own show. You've been hurting other people. You've been thumbing your nose at God. Oh, maybe not in a direct way in saying it, but the way you lived your life. You live it as though he isn't around. You don't live out his purposes for your life. You don't even care to find out what they are. But now you recognize that that rebellion needs to be punished. That's what justice is all about. But Jesus paid it for you. And by accepting the gift of eternal life that he offers, by having paid it for you, he's written out a check for you, and he's offering it to you. You just need to take it. I'm going to pray a prayer right now in which you can receive that gift of eternal life and know that your sins are forgiven. And if you will pray along with me in your minds and your heart silently, then you can become a child of God right now. You can be saved. Dear God, I thank you for bringing me here today and challenging me, forcing me to think outside the dot about the long tomorrow. I haven't been giving any attention to it and I've been living my life as though I've really been gambling my life away. I've been rolling the dice and I've been rebelling against you. I've hurt people, certainly hurt you. I've broken your laws and your commands. I ask you to forgive me for that and I thank you that Jesus paid the price and the penalty for that. And I accept that penalty on his behalf on my behalf and now I ask you to save me I ask you to come into my heart you be the boss, you be the CEO you be in charge of my life and I will follow you you show me what my plan the plan for my life is the good works you want me to do that will advance your kingdom and bring others into the kingdom and I will do them in Jesus name Amen If you prayed that prayer, you meant it. Then Jesus became your Lord and Savior today. You became a child of God. You're a believer. You're a Christian, a Christ follower. And now you want to join on with a whole body of believers who will help you grow in that and show you how you can find that purpose and meaning and how you can fulfill the purpose that God has for you. God bless you.